0: but uh, I suppose the the thing that was difficult through learning all of that was you'd continually come up against objections, particularly in, like in in the UK context, that, yeah, well, that's not really quite how it works here or, well, you know, that might work you know, for America, but no, nah, not for here. No, no, we, we gave our Bank of England independence in 1998, so that can't possibly be true. You know, so mm-hmm. there's all these sort of technical, institutional empirical objections for the particular context of the uk that you know well you don't get that from randall ray's blog as as good as as good as they are <laughs>
1: um well there, he's american yeah. you know
0: yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah um and so i suppose that that just made me think right need to carry on looking into this need to try and understand it for the uk context is it right or is it wrong is it half true you know wh- which is it
1: Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with 10th year MMT activist Andy Berkeley. Andy has a PhD in marine sedimentology and is a marine scientist and oceanographer by trade. He's also the co-author of the 2020 paper, An Accounting Model of the UK Exchequer, which is published by the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. This episode is also Part 3 of a larger seven-part series on the paper and its three co-authors. The first five are with each individual author, and the final two with all three jointly, where we discuss the paper in depth. Last week, in Part 1 of my conversation with Andy, we spoke about two very non-economic topics. The first half dedicated to the 50-year-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the second half to the drastically different and lighter subject of music. Today in part two, Andy describes his life and thinking before knowing about MMT. He tells the story about how he discovered it from an actual stranger on a train who he now knows as Chris Cook. While talking with a friend, the person sitting across from him, Chris, interrupted and interjected the fateful words, banks don't lend deposits and governments don't spend taxes. Confirming the former came rather quickly for Andy. The latter, however, that governments don't spend taxes took years to fully grasp. After learning more about the concept, it made the entire puzzle appear to make sense. However, only after completing his 2020 paper many years later did he finally confirm that what was mere economic theory, to him nothing more than a thought experiment, actually applies to the world in which we live. Two important events that Andy believes prepared him to accept MMT years later were first the 2003 invasion of Kuwait by Iraq and the subsequent invasion of Iraq by the US and its allies. The second was a brief and largely out-of-place montage in the Michael Moore documentary Bowling for Columbine. The montage shows how the United States' invasion of Iraq was merely the tip of an iceberg, demonstrating its decades-long imperialism and the UK's support of it. These two things called into question for Andy the idea that the US and UK are 100% forces for good, and it made him realize that what we are told may in fact be contrary with reality, and actually has the goal of keeping the powerful powerful and everyone else in the dark. As an aside, it's both shocking and not shocking that YouTube will not allow you to share that montage at all. It won't even allow you to copy the link. Finally, a minor correction. The UK is 800 years old. And now let's get right back to my conversation with Andy Berkeley. And so I was doing the first two notes and then I had to move my hand into an awkward shape really, really quickly. And I was finding it very difficult actually started thinking of MMT both sides of the equation. And I was like, I can move the guitar as well. I can start the guitar in a position in a a little bit higher diagonal position so I don't have to bend my arm so right. so oddly. And and that actually, you know, a, a, in my mind anyway, it, it felt like, you know, MMT, both sides of the equation, that I'm not the only thing that exists here. The guitar can also be manipulated as well. So right. anyway, that's my very weak segue yeah. into MMT. So, um, um, all right. So, so that was a lot more than I expected, and I, I, I kind of enjoyed that. Um, yeah, me too. Um, okay. So, so let's start the let's start our interview for the <laughs> after an hour. Um, uh, let me ask you the, the first question that I normally ask people, and you you've obviously introduced yourself. But what I what I normally ask people is. Please introduce yourself and then please describe your life and thinking before you discovered MMT. And for some people, and for me, that means also economics. That you just, you know, before you had an awareness of MMT or before you had an awareness of uh, MMT and economics. So,
0: please. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think my understanding of economics was, um, well non-existent um probably before the, the global financial crisis you know it's, pro- it's probably a bit of a cliche i imagine that lots of people you talk to i imagine got motivated when the global financial crisis happened and uh, before that um you know the, the, probably the, as we discussed earlier on the five years before the financial crisis hit you know i was definitely getting more attuned to politics uh uh, foreign policy and that sort of thing—you know—we've just we've chatted about that. Um, but but economics itself, um, no. I mean, I, I think I just implicitly accepted the the sort of framing that is thrown at us. You know, the government collecting taxes, the government spending money. Um, I did used to watch the news on the TV and be completely mystified by things like interest rates and inflation rates and mm. unemployment rates, and I was always mystified that they were they were discussed in a way that provided absolutely no um, explanation or explanatory power and i was always very very mystified as to whether anybody else actually understood what was what was being mentioned you know mm. uh, an interest rate being de- being declared or, or an inflation rate being declared or you know the exchange rate having changed does does anybody actually understand what this means you know because I, I i certainly never did and of course yeah i mean i obviously i know now that some, some people do understand those things um, but I, it was very, I, I really did not understand the connection between, you know, the, the statistics that, that are quoted to us in the news and the relevance that they have for, you know, people's lives and that sort of thing. Um, and it was only when the, the global financial crisis hit and really the, again, my, my, my reaction to that was not a great deal. You know, it was really when we had the political reaction to it, in, certainly in the UK, um, where the, the whole political landscape was was completely changed really by the the sort of drive for austerity the drive for government for cuts in government budgets mm. on the back of that financial crisis and i suppose just part of me uh, felt that i wasn't quite satisfied that the arguments that were being presented were correct but i really didn't know what really didn't have the 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 sort of the theory in my own head, or the evidence, or the data, or the understanding, to be able to evaluate the arguments, but something just didn't quite seem to, to make sense. So, but yeah, so so really, really before the global financial crisis, and even after the global financial crisis, I would say I was in a position of enormous ignorance uh, with respect with respect to economics.
1: Are you saying that you that you did not follow economics before the Great Financial Crash crisis? Before?
0: Yeah, i say uh, yeah, I'd say so, yeah. Um, like i say I, I was i was i was reasonably interested in politics but i, I don't know if this is revisionism or just um, you know my, my memory not being great but i don't think economics was i mean obviously it, it was discussed but i don't it wasn't as as big a part of politics as it is now i don't think um, before the global financial crisis hmm. so i suppose I suppose in a way uh, as as somebody who you know wasn't directly involved in the study of economics, it wasn't something you necessarily had to be, you know, that interested in to, to even just be engaged in, in politics. I, th- I think I mean that that's that's my sort of memory of it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I didn't really follow economic metrics, economic developments in the United Kingdom very much. Uh, I think
1: that's certainly true to say. So the Great Financial Crash was what made you intrigued. By economics, but there, I believe you said something like ten years ago, so it had to be relatively soon after that that you started, I guess, questioning or something.
0: Yeah, well, well, I mean, in the United Kingdom, I think I am correct in saying the Northern Rock, the which was a bank that kind of basically, you know, there was a run on on Northern Rock and it went bust. I think that was in like something like August or September, I think, two thousand seven, and then two thousand eight was probably the the main part of the financial crisis. But then we had an election in 2010, in May 2010, and in the run-up to that election, the the UK was kind of out of the recession and the economy was growing again. But the the terms on which the election was being fought was very much about the economy, and um, in particular with the Conservative Party in our country in my view, you know, now in hindsight, I don't, I don't, I don't, mean I necessarily thought this at the time, but in my view, decided to exploit the crisis, um, the fear of avoiding tr- that kind of a crisis again. Yeah, well, they, they, they tried to blame the Labour Party, which were the incumbent government, for mm-hmm. the crisis, which is you know absolutely absurd, given that it was a global crisis and with its with its roots <laughs> in the United States, I think. Um, mm-hmm they tried to suggest that the Labour Party was profligate, you know, just spent too much, was just reckless with the government, with, with the country's finances and things like that. And so I suppose that was one way of demonising their opponent. But it also set the set the scene for, for the types of policies that they would always want to have promoted, you know, like cutting the size of the state, cutting social security, cutting welfare, cutting government services, it, it kind of laid laid the ground for them to be able to pro- propose those types of policies as as an economic imperative, as as a necessity, not because people would choose them because they wanted them, but because they had to have them because there's no other choice. You know, we don't have any money left. Mm-hmm. So I suppose economics became much more of a political back- battleground. And I, I think, I suppose this is me talking in hindsight because I feel like I understand it a lot more now and I didn't then, um, but what what they managed to do was to was to, you know, spin a story of you know the government's finances being like a household, and that is such a simple, intuitive story that everybody everybody can accept that, without really having to think about it that much, you know. So it's a, mm-hmm. therefore an incredibly powerful political tool, you know. And and I think I think the Labour Party, I know, and the entire political system found it. Uh, impossible to count that so this the scene was then then set for we've had this big financial crisis there's no money left the Labour party are to blame we you have to vote for us and you have to vote for us to slash the government's budgets uh, you know you couldn't you couldn't ask for economics to be more of a to be more at the center of the of, of all of politics you know
1: were there was the 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 consequences of the fear of the crisis just by looking at the U S or were there severe consequences that you recall in the UK from the crisis? I
0: honestly, I, I, I don't feel qualified to answer that question. Really. Uh, my sense, my, my sense is that it wasn't, there were not there weren't like sort of wholesale bankruptcies and, and foreclosures and that sort of thing. Um, there was a recession, there was a real recession, and therefore, you know, an uptick in unemployment and things like that. And okay. obviously, the, go- the government's finances adjust to that, and, you know, we had a big deficit therefore. But I don't think, in, in my in my view, the system just functioned in the way it needed to. You know, the, the automatic stabilizers, the, the, the government's deficit went up, uh, obviously tax revenues dropped, and unemployment benefits increased, and... After a few quarters, it, it was starting to rectify itself, and the, the economy was growing again um, and, and so so kind of know, a,
1: a, kind of a more i mean this is not the greatest term or phrase, but kind of a more natural recession than in the United States with all the foreclosures due to crime and all that
0: but possibly yeah, yeah. I mean I do think that if you know we hadn't had the austerity that came in in 2010 that the economy would have just would have just bounced back itself you know organically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, a recession is caused by when people stop spending, and you come out with a recession right. when people when people start spending again. Um, mm-hmm. And but yet, the Conservative Party and the, the, the new Conservative government that came in obviously tried to spin it a very different way. You know, it's all to do with the government finances caused it, and the government and, and changing the government, the government's finances will fix it, which just isn't 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 the right doesn't doesn't have the mechanics right at all, in my view. It's crazy. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so I, I I mean you know I I don't want to say there was no suffering in the recession, you know I don't want to say that it was just no there, there weren't any 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 problems. Um there there was a recession and there are always, you know, victims of a recession. Um, and, it, and it was a bigger recession than you know most of the previous ones in the, in the latter half of the 20th century you know so certainly certainly there were victims certainly there was there'll have been some suffering and stuff but i you know i don't i don't know that it was some sort of something existentially different to any other recession that needed you know what was actually completely counterproductive measures by the incoming government um, mm-hmm. and, and that was really the point the point is that it was really just a um a, a political argument it wasn't an economic argument to make the country accept the political choices of the incoming government that they wouldn't otherwise accept if they weren't being framed in this in this way of economic necessity.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, what year did you get your doctorate?
0: 2008.
1: Oh, so right at the crisis. Okay, I was going to ask. Yeah, it was actually. A, I was, <laughs> yeah. was going to ask. Um, I, I was not like, okay, so you... I mean your doctor obviously made you aware of something i mean you learned something pretty deeply um Mm -hmm. not necessarily politics or economics but you learned something very deeply then you became aware of foreign policy five years before that with Mm -hmm. the iraq war so you became Mm -hmm. aware politically in a sense Mm -hmm. in 2003 and then you became aware economically in around 2008 and I presume MMT became around a few years after that, two or three years after that. I'm guessing, yep. based yes. on just ten years in the past. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering how your doctorate and how your how your awareness of the foreign policy in five years previous affected your becoming aware of economics and eventually MMT. But before you answer that, the reason that I'm saying this is mm-hmm. because I became – I was pretty unaware of many important things before Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders kind of woke me up in a a grand sense. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he also introduced me to uh, to economics through his pay-for document. How are we going to pay for things? That was my introduction to economics looking back. I kind of recently realized that. And then I kind of was questioning that for a long time of – you know, arguing over that and stuff. And then someone introduced me to MMT. So I, I, I kind of like, it was like an on off switch for me. Like it was just completely aware of everything, you know, roughly speaking, aware of everything at once. Um, so I'm, it, it seemed to be more gradual for you. So I'm wondering how your doctorate and how your experience with becoming more aware of foreign policy affected changed how you became aware of economics and eventually mmt
0: yeah um i mean on on the on the foreign policy thing i mean uh yeah i I suppose once you've once you've had an experience that the the common narrative or the the information that we tend to be presented to us in our in our society in our in our culture in our media once you've had an experience where you've felt Hang on. The, meat, the the information that I'm being kind of fed isn't necessarily the right information. I suppose that's that changes you a little bit because it means,
1: hmm.
0: again, I don't want to I don't want to suggest that this is all conspiratorial and everything, you know. But I do think I do th- I do think what we get in our you know in our schools, in our uh, media, in our news, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of skewed in a way that that. Certainly, you know, in the United Kingdom, there's a lot of kind of you know, Britain is Britain is marvellous, the empire was great, and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's maybe not that 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 direct, but it's kind of underneath, it's implicit, you know. Um, there's a, a lot of sort of exceptionalism in what we we learn about ourselves. I think in Britain, mm-hmm. maybe every country's like that. I don't know, you know, um, but I, I do. I, I think you know, going through that process with foreign policy and understanding that, well, maybe we don't always have the best best intentions maybe we do some bad things around the world and i suppose in the context of the late 20th century it's more about the united states doing those sorts of things but we tend to follow along you know um but the you know the united states are always painted as the good guys in in our society um and you know china or russia or iran are the bad guys um you know when you go through a process way so you realize maybe that's not quite correct and the way that it's been presented to you it isn't really perfectly objective or whatever then i suppose that yeah that does change you a little bit in the sense that you are more attuned to questioning things in the future and trying to apply critical thinking to to you know the information that's being presented to you so i I, but you know i don't i don't think that's um i don't think that's this that that is certainly not unique to me and you know everyone goes through these 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 um sort of experiences of you know feeling that I've gained an insight into something feeling like they view the world in a different way you know but yeah I'd say if there's a connection then that's it uh, between the foreign policy stuff and the MMT stuff Um, you know I wasn't really prepared when the conservative government came in and started arguing for austerity I wasn't really prepared to just swallow it and accept it I was my instinct was to question it and again you know that's I'm, I'm I'm not exceptional in that in that sense tons of lots of people did that um quite rightly as well but yeah um i'm i'm definitely i'm definitely willing to question things you know as as are, as are lots of people with my my phd i don't i don't know if there's a, a link necessarily i mean i suppose a phd it's just quite a privileged position to do a phd you know you, you get uh, you get time and space to really immerse yourself into something and really study something and become a bit of an expert on it um I think for for a lot of people, and it, it definitely my case, you become you become an expert on something that is so niche and so narrow that, that it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily doesn't necessarily have a great deal of um, application. Uh, but nevertheless, you know it's 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 it, it is a privilege, and it, it's a it's a good exercise to go through to be able to study something in depth and to try and navigate the concepts. Navigate the you know the data, the data analysis that's required, the, the methods that you might use to to understand those concepts or to interrogate them, and to write about them. Mm. You know, being able to write about complicated things is a bit of a skill or an art, you know. Uh, but it's something that you know with a PhD, you get plenty of time to to kind of refine it and practice it, and um, you know, and hopefully, you get reasonably good
1: at it. Um, mm. I actually didn't think of it from that point of view. Your experience. Writing your PhD probably assisted you, just logistically speaking, in your UK Exchequer paper.
0: Probably, yeah. Probably um, in 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 some ways, yeah. How you know? How do you how do you organize information and arguments in a logical manner so that you unfold a story in a coherent way? I mean, I definitely think a that, massive labyrinthine story. A PhD
1: yeah. in the UK
0: yeah. Exchequer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely found when I was doing my PhD that. You know, you, you would often start writing stuff and then you'd realize, actually, I've got these two things backwards. That This thing here should go before that thing because it logically needs mm-hmm. to go before it. And, you know, you, you kind of, I suppose you, I, I did feel like you, I, I, I got somewhat adept at being able to organize the thinking correctly after time, you know, you, it takes time. And and it takes time and effort, but you you get used to sort of organizing the ideas in, in, in a way that is the most logical and the most coherent. Um whereas sometimes sometimes when you've you've got you've got an idea or something in your head that is quite complicated, you could you know, you could rush out a, a couple of paragraphs describing it and it would be reasonable, but actually you look back at it later and go, hmm, a few of those things were kind of not quite in the right order or not quite in the right sequence so not quite hmm. related to one another correctly and you'd sort of refine it. Um, and that's a good, I mean, that's a good, that's a good way to refine your own thinking, you know, to write about it and to try and then to, to consider what you've wrote and, um, you know, try and rework it and make, make it make more sense and be more coherent. So, you know, I, I, I don't think there's a tendency to, to think that doing a PhD, having a doctorate is, is, you know, oh, you're dead clever, you're dead amazing, you know, this sort of thing. I, I don't agree with that at all. Like, I think, I think um, a PhD is a, is a, privileged time where you're you're given a lot you're given three years in the uk uh, a bit more in the us i think um to, to to really immerse yourself into something and it's it's perfectly possible to do that in other walks of life you know you can do that in a job you can do that as a hobby you know um and i don't think there's anything necessarily special about a phd that means that you've gone through a process that is vastly different from what other people might go through when they're when they're applying themselves in a workplace or uh, even just something recreationally um but nevertheless, it is a time when you spend a lot of you spend a lot of time and effort um, looking at something very, very deeply, and you know that is that is worth something. That, that, that does help your, I suppose, your thinking and writing
1: skills. And you get to do it in in a PhD, in particular. It's not necessarily different from average people, but it is privileged in the sense that you can do it with much less distraction.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, society, you know, allows you to spend three years of your life on this thing that I suppose is not, you know, um, not necessarily contributing to everybody else's welfare, you know, Mm. it might do, hopefully it will, hopefully it will in some way, but you know, a lot of Mm -hmm. academic research, a lot of academic research is hit and miss, you know, which, which it has to be, you know, but it's, it's, it's privileged in the sense that, yeah, you, 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 you get to spend a lot of time studying something for your own benefit because it you know it increases your own understanding of things and increases your own skills and it, and it and it you know hopefully prepares you to do something more useful later on in your life but you know a lot of people don't get that privilege a lot of people uh, have to go to a you know a different type of workplace or juggle more jobs um uh, and, and and maybe don't get the same sense of developing themselves as, as you do when you, when you're able to do a PhD. So, um, yeah, I do think it's, I do, I do think it's a, it's it's a privilege to, to, to do that sort of thing.
1: It's interesting. Um, okay. Uh, so, okay. So work your way to MMT. So I, I know you've, you've somewhat told this story. Um, but, mm-hmm. but so after the great financial crash, you, you had foreign policy in your head, you had, you had politics in general in your head, you had economics in your head. And then how did this lead you to MMT itself?
0: Yeah, well, I, st- I did start reading books on, on, on economics, um, trying to think which books I read. I can't, I can't actually remember.
1: I, I read a few John Kenneth Galbraith books, which, which I enjoyed. Oh, good ones to yeah. choose. I, I, yeah. I, w- I presume that it was just lucky that you chose that. How, like how did, that that's, I would think that that's reasonably MMT compatible, or it, yeah. uh, it's probably not the right way of saying it, but that is accurate. It's accurate economics. Mm-hmm. And you just coincidentally happened to choose that. I, could, I can't remember why why I did. To be honest, I'm not. I'm not
0: sure. Um, I think I yeah. I've somehow just learned that John Kenneth Galbraith was like you know this this sort of eminent popularizer of economics through the sort of late mid to late 20th century. So I thought of, right you know that that sounds like a good a reasonable way way in.
1: Oh.
0: And I did I, I did enjoy. I read two or three of his books and I I, I did enjoy them. I also. I also read a book I think it was called the Origin of Wealth or something like that about by a guy called Eric Beanhawkcker I, I think that's mm. I think that's what it was called. Um, and it was all about sort of applying I suppose evolution to economics. Um, I think the idea being that you know I suppose a capitalist economy works a little bit like a little bit like evolution where you have you know you have you have business plans that, that, that are selected for and that, and that win out. In the in in the sort of in the evolutionary race and the, and the business plans will, uh, I guess, adapt and and proliferate and be selected. So that that was quite an interesting idea. And I, I was very interested in evolution, uh, sort of in the, the previous decade. So that was that was that was quite interesting to read. But I didn't really feel like I got a sense of, you know, how does how does a macro economy work? What's the government's role in it? You know, it was very much about, I suppose, just just um, business capitalism. Uh, so yeah, I didn't I didn't really feel like I was getting the insights that I, that I wanted from reading a lot of those things. Uh and well, I you know, have t- and I've told this story before and I think I think you've you've probably heard it. Um but it was actually on my, my route into MMT was yeah, I was I was chatting to a friend on a train uh from from London to mm. Glasgow and um south sea bubble i think and there's a there's a i think a scottish guy called john law who was involved in that and there was a guy sitting opposite us opposite us called chris cook who i've now i've now met many times since um you didn't know him on the train no 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 he was just happened to be sitting on the table that that we were at and he interjected and i think you know corrected something that that we were saying and we just got into a conversation with him um so chris cook i think going back to like the iraq war and that sort of thing i think Chris Cook um, had been involved in the the UK so the oil exchanges in London. You know, I think he was, you know, one of the big oil markets. I think in London, and I think he he actually had a connection with. Um, I think I think Iran had wanted. This goes back to the thing you mentioned earlier about the Petrodollar, and uh, I remember at the time of the Iraq War, there was a suggestion that uh, you know Iraq and Iran were. Potentially going to choose to start selling their oil in euros and that, that was one of the motivations for the iraq war apparently you know but but chris chris cook did explain to me that i think he, he'd been involved somehow in in the, the possibility of the development of this iranian oil boss is sort of an iranian oil exchange um so i found that i found that an really oil, interesting
1: the development of an oil what
0: I, I think it's called an oil boss like an oil boss? exchange boss b-b-o-u-r-s-e um, oh, Bourse, okay. Yeah, so like, like essentially, a sort of, an, uh, I think, like a, a, an oil market in mm-hmm. in Iran mm-hmm. that could be using something other than the dollar. Mm-hmm. So I found I found that really interesting. Um, he, he, I mean, he he doesn't work in that field anymore, but uh, I, fa- I found that very interesting because that was kind of fresh in my mind. But the the most important thing that that Chris Chris said to us were two things. You know, um, banks don't lend out deposits, and governments don't spend taxes. And I was just you know I couldn't I couldn't understand how either of those things could be true. I imagine our conversation at this point had, got, had moved from the South, South Sea bubble to more contemporary uh, things and, and you know the because I think this was about 2010 by this point the austerity that mm. was that was being sort of enacted by the incoming conservative government so I, I I can only assume we'd moved on to that and then Chris made those two statements that, uh, so say, so there's two statements again I kind of interrupted you uh banks don't lend out deposits and governments don't spend taxes um <laughs> now, now now the first one um i think you know i went away i got home and over the next few days i, I looked into it and you know I very very quickly satisfied myself the banks don't um don't lend out deposits you know that's quite easy that's quite an easy one it's quite straightforward to understand that and you know there was just my ignorance really that you know that that wasn't necessarily a massively profound statement that chris had made but it was made to sound profound because I was incredibly ignorant of how banking worked. Um, haven't said how did that. you confirm? Uh, I mean, I can't remember exactly what I landed upon. I mean, if it's it's not correct, but even the you know the fractional reserve money multiplier effect, which isn't isn't true, allows you to get to the idea that banks don't lend out deposits. I think doesn't it? Um, now there, there was, I suppose, the, the thing that the thing that really i suppose confuses me about that period is that you know the bank of england published a paper in 2014 which confirmed all of that Mm. and a lot of people seem to think that that, this was like new (laughs) like it was Mm. it seemed to be news to a lot of the economic community i mean some of them Mm. some of them still seem to deny it you know the the sort Mm. of loanable funds theory um it does seem it does seem quite quite mystifying that uh even a small part of the the economics community could could not have understood that until the Bank of England explained it um uh, but yeah so so when this Bank of England paper came out I you know I as an anonymous economist had already satisfied myself that the deposits aren't loaned out mm-hmm. uh, the the other the other statement that Chris had made on that train journey was um yeah governments don't spend taxes uh, that that was much harder to to get my head around and I think that's where I ended up landing on MMT and I think I think I think probably landed on some sort of Randall Ray blog pages first and sort of thought "Mm, right this is describing the thing that I think Chris had meant on the train does sound interesting Mm -hmm. better better look better look into it more I was attracted to the ideas that I found, you know, reading Randall Ray's stuff. Then you sort of, I guess, you, you end up discovering Stephanie Kelton or Bill Mitchell and others. And the ideas suddenly seemed to be painting a picture of the economy which was coherent to me. You know, I now understood uh, what the money supply is, how that's linked to interest rates, how you know, how interest rates are linked to inflation. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily mean directly, but in the in the sort of um, conceptually and and how the government's finances feed into all of that um all of a sudden there was a picture being painted that i now felt was coherent you know whereas you know five years previously i would look at the news and be mystified at all these metrics that were being were were being presented and sort of mystified as to how anybody was actually understanding what was being (laughs) what was being discussed i now felt right okay this is this is a coherent description of a system that allows me to to navigate it conceptually that's good you know that's I now feel like I can I can interpret you know what's happening, what what policies now might mean, and whether they're justified or not. or, or I was at least starting to, but uh, I suppose the the thing that was difficult through learning all of that was you would continually come up against objections, particularly in, like in, in the UK context. That yeah, well, that's not really quite how it works here, or or well, you know that might work in, for America. No, nah, not for here. No, no. We, we gave our Bank of England independence in 1998, so that can't possibly be true. You know. So mm-hmm. there's all these sort of technical, institutional, empirical objections for the particular context of the UK. That you know, well, you don't get that from Randall Ray's blog as as good as as good mm-hmm. as they are.
1: <laughs> um, well, there, he's American. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I suppose that that just made me think right need to carry on looking into this need to try and understand it for the UK context is it right or is it wrong is it half true you know what which is it
1: okay so this is a perfect setup to what i think is going to be a good final question which is could have a reasonably in-depth answer which is okay so you were intrigued you you were you were your sh- your thinking was shattered by the person on the train who said that governments don't spend taxes and that led you to mmt led you to randy ray and so on but even after you be- became an mmter you know you were still even though you were con- convinced logically that this made sense it, it you know if that assumption was true that that governments don't spend taxes then that made the whole picture feel correct to you but it was still not satisfying because there's no satis- there's no satisfactory explanation of the UK system, so that gradually, eventually, led you to your paper. So if you can describe mm-hmm. that journey, and then I think a, a good ending would be to give a brief preview of the paper itself. Um, this is going to be um, uh, Richard is going to be first, then you, and then Neil, and then the 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 three of you together. Um, so can you? You know, elaborate a little yeah, bit. Um, yeah, so I think, like I said, you know, you would
0: continue to come up against objections in the United Kingdom uh, for, you know, well, it doesn't work like that this way. And that made me feel like, well, how does it work? And how do people know how it works if they're so sure that it doesn't work that way? Um, and if, So then, you, you, well, I guess you led, or I, I suppose that led to several years of, you know, looking at... Government documentation, looking at Bank of England publications, um, looking at legislation, and every step of the way, you kind of—I uh, I, suppose—early on, it was more just trying to satisfy yourself of this question or that question, this uncertainty or that uncertainty, this challenge or that challenge. And invariably, when you do that, you know you you find a little bit of information that helps in one sense, but there's still a massive picture. A massive landscape that is sort of you know empty and you don't necessarily have all you don't you don't have all the dots joined so really it was a a very a, a long-term effort to try and satisfy myself that that i could navigate that that landscape for the uk um in particular and it, it just required lots and lots of time lots and lots of reading lots and lots of note-taking and then um, i guess eventually getting together with richard and neil and trying to trying to find some coherency through all of that information. I mean, if you if you talk about the period from, say, 2010 to 2015 or 16, that was probably more continuing to read, con- you know, read, b- reading blog posts, for example, Neil's blog posts, because Neil was quite a prolific blogger back then, you know, mm-hmm. keeping up with the MMT blog posts and literature and that sort of stuff. Um, and just sort of dipping the toe in the water with respect to the uk system yeah i think th- i think the way that this worked for me at least was you know you, you're faced with an incredibly complicated system and a massive sort of paucity of information you know there's there's just no information about it at least organized in the in the sense that you would like it to be so i think the way that it that worked for me was that When you start adding little bits of information to that huge empty landscape, it's very, very slow and you're just adding tiny little snippets of, you know, ideas, concepts, maybe a bit of evidence, a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of legislation or something that you think fits in, but it's so dispersed at that point that it's not a coherent sort of picture just yet. But then invariably, as you start to fill those gaps very, very slowly, the whole thing sort of accelerates because you start to get linkages joined between concepts and ideas and bits of legislation or bits of policy. And all of a sudden it kind of, the whole thing speeds up and all the dots start to get filled in faster. I don't know if that mm. makes any sense, but um, so no, sure. of
1: course it, you, you, it, it brings up my, my, my experience of MMT itself. Like at first it's like all these interesting things that I don't understand. And I had there don't feel like any connection, but I can tell that they're important. But then at some yeah. point, it's like those pieces suddenly, like you know, fall into place, and there's
0: yeah. Totally, totally, and I think one piece of information in isolation is very difficult to understand and very difficult to contextualize. You don't really know how it fits in, but but when you've got five bits of information, it's almost like those five bits inf- of information are worth more because because they're all together, because mm. they they slot together and they mean something in the context of one another so it's it's almost like they, they add up to more than the sum of their parts i don't know if that makes mm-hmm. sense True. um and i think, I I think, mean, I like, think that's just,
1: the whole concept of macroeconomics adding more it is
0: yeah it <laughs> is yeah yeah um so i think yeah in the early stages it's very very slow because every single bit of information that, that is apparently interesting and potentially important uh is still kind of sitting there by itself and you don't even really know how it fits in but soon, the more sort of densely you fill in the information it it starts to compound the importance of all of those bits of information because they now sit next to each other they have a they have a relevance next to one another and and the whole thing starts to become much more um i suppose much more vivid and much more coherent so i think yeah i think there's almost like an acceleration so yeah I, i suppose i would say that first the first five years of looking into this were very very slow and very very much just picking little bits of information that might be relevant and then all of a sudden there's a big acceleration in how all of those things fit together and how the dots join and how the stars align uh, and so I suppose that's what that, that was the process over the last 18 months um, mm. really it's just a a long-term effort which is very very slow and very laborious and requires constant thinking, constant refinement, and constant discussion uh, to, to sort of organize the ideas and sort of jettison the ones that don't quite match the evidence.
1: Hmm. Um, okay. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, it's interesting to me, and I may be completely wrong, I but my feeling is that even though the United States is massively larger than the UK, that the system seems – less complicated. The UK seems right. orders of magnitude more complicated than the U S at least at first instinct. And I have a feeling it's a function of age that the, the UK is what 3000 years old or something. And the, you know, the U S is a couple hundred years old. I, I maybe, I, I hope I'm not, I, I believe I'm, I'm roughly correct with that. Um, uh, so, I mean, you can respond to that, but, but can you close out please by giving a brief preview of, your paper and the findings that you came in.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, but I mean, it is it, the the UK system is complicated. I think, I think it's been made more complicated since 1998 when we had this thing called the Bank of England Act that gave operational independence to the Bank of England. Um, if you look at if you look at how it worked before that, it was a bit simpler. I mean, you you might still say that it was. Uh, um, quite complicated, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not an expert on the on the U.S. system, so I, I can't really I can't really compare. But um, if you look at the 1960s, for example, the UK government really had a sort of one bank account at the Bank of England, and it would just spend just spend money into existence via that via that bank account, and then at the end of the day, the Bank of England itself would sell Treasury bills to try and drain that money back out. But it would do that in conjunction with its own monetary policy. In fact, it, it was all monetary policy, really. You know, so that so the government would spend into the economy, and the Bank of England, under its monetary policy objectives, would would you know sort of do the do the garbage collection, if you like, uh, sell treasury bills to drain that money out. And it, and it might be that it wasn't draining out all of the government spending because that wasn't required according to its money true policy objectives. In which case, the government's effectively spent money into the the economy that day. Uh, on net so that's quite simple you know that's not that difficult there there are some complexities around the fact that there were some additional bank accounts at the bank of england you know one one bank account held by somebody called her majesty's paymaster general Uh, and they would they would be the ones that are actually administering the, the government department spending but you know that's a kind of a kind of like a footnote you don't necessarily have to Bother with that complexity. Essentially, there's one account that the government spends out of, and the Bank of England sort of tidy up at the end of the day by selling treasury bills. Um, that whole system goes back certainly to the Victorian times and and before that, and, it, and and it hadn't really changed much, as far as I can tell. So that's not that complicated. But you know, you you can look at the nuances and the technical details and and, and add complexity, um, but. But then in nineteen sixty eight we had this thing called the National Loans Act, which created a kind of like a, a borrowing and lending account for the government. So that now instead of having one account, you had two. Uh, one account for sort of everyday tax and spend and then another account for borrowing and lending. So that adds a little bit of complexity. But for all intents and purposes, it's still it still functions in the same way. It just means there's sort of, you know, an, an extra page of accounts to keep track of but but then it's really i think in the in the 1990s late 1990s that where we had this thing called the Bank of England Act uh, that that gave operational independence to the Bank of England um for monetary policy you know basically for setting interest rates and it was deemed at the time therefore prudent to have the government's debt being managed not by the bank of england anymore as part of their monetary policy but as this but by this new institution called the debt management office. So now on every each day the debt management office which is a branch of the hm treasury, her majesty's treasury, they are doing a lot of the job that the bank the bank of england used to do which is you know when the government sort of net spends into the banking sector each day, the debt management officer's job is to drain that back out by selling treasury bills or, or gilts, which are what we call government bonds. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got an, an, another whole institution that is doing part of the job that the Bank of England used to do, but of course the Bank of England is still doing a, a bit of the job that it used to do, which is which is what we call monetary policy today. And so so that, that adds complexity. And then I suppose the next bit of complexity is in 2008 – the Bank of England decided that it wasn't going to provide kind of retail banking services to the government anymore. What I, what I mean by retail banking services are the the sort of front end banking services that the government departments would use each day. You know, log into a a web page and and um, execute a payment or transfer some money somewhere. You know, um, the Bank of England still provides what are called wholesale banking services to the government. You know, basically the the main are at the Bank of England. But when the government departments themselves execute payments, they think they're doing it through. Barclays or NatWest Nat banks. So there's a kind of a commercial bank front end on the government's banking arrangements. But underneath, the actual flows of set, of money for settlement are still the same. They're still coming from the Bank of I, England.
1: Actually, uh, if I can interrupt you, that actually reminds yeah. me of a question that I was going to ask, yeah. uh, which I, you kind of just answered uh, in, our, in our joint interview with the three of you. Um, what it seems to me, what you just described, that the banks basically were given tasks to do but the bank accounts themselves are still at the Bank of England what it seems to me is that basically the Bank of England created a button that does one thing and one thing only and the banks and they have a long wire between the Bank of England to the to the commercial bank and the bank gets to push that button but what actually happens is still on the Bank of England side is that is that roughly yeah the correct interpretation exactly. it's a very yeah. very specialized button that does yeah. something at the Bank of England on the Bank of England's computers, but they just gave permission to the commercial banks to do that particular thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. The the, the commercial banks are involved in well sort of banking transmission services. So they the you know, the, there's obviously a lot of banking infrastructure um to do with, you know, bank accounts. We have we have in this country something called sort codes, which are like um a code that describes the well the bank or the part of a commercial bank that that your account is in Uh, and it's one of the S O R T. Yeah. Yeah. sort code. So, so every, every, every bank account is is described by a a sort code and a, and an account number and the sort code really identifies the commercial bank. But I think, I think most commercial banks will have a range of sort codes that they use. So, you know, our government departments have sort codes and they have account numbers um, and the sort codes match the commercial bank sort codes that they use. So, you know, most government departments will have will have sort codes which refer to Nat NatWest National Westminster Bank, um, and you know it's that type of infrastructure, banking infrastructure that, that these commercial partners provide. But underneath the flows of you know central bank money that are moving in order to settle the payments that are instructed via these commercial banks are all at the Bank of England, and they're all you know the, the same the same accounts that uh, that have been used for the last two hundred years. Well, certainly the last. Um, since um i think 1834 1838 1848 mm. i think there's mm. so so you know they're they're getting on for 200 years old these accounts i don't think they've changed um the, the point being that the process has not changed for 150 or 200 years the money comes from the bank of england and it comes from the bank of england under the order of the treasury uh, mm. and that's all in legislation you know uh, but we just have this veil over the top this commercial banking veil that, that you know provides probably probably quite good retail banking services to the government departments you know so they they can log in and 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 click some buttons and, and get their payments made you know but the the flows of money and the and the provenance of that money is still the bank of england and ultimately parliament in the same way that it has been for well at, at least at least 150 years but actually much longer i think
1: Hmm. All right. Don't answer this question because we're, we're long and I don't want to, I don't want to keep you longer, but, but just a question that, that comes up, uh, is aside from creating confusion, I wonder what giving that specialized button, those specialized buttons to these commercial banks adds in a practical sense. Don't, don't answer it. But that, that is the question that, that, that brings up. Um, like, like, what is the, the practical reason that they want to organize it in this way? I want. I wonder what the answer to that question is. But, um, uh, so, uh, yeah, no, I, I kind of interrupted you, but but uh, is there if there's anything else that you feel needs to be said, please say it.
0: Um, I mean, you, you did you you asked to give a sort of overview of the of the of the paper. Um, I mean, i I've, I think I've, I've probably described there how spending works, pretty much, uh, and and hopefully how the it is a complex system but i think the you know you can view a simple version of the system and i think you pretty much could see that in the 1960s and then there's been there's been layers and layers of complexity added upon that and you can you can see through that complexity if you want to and, and kind of abstract it away and what we try to do in the paper is deal with it, you know just deal, deal with what those complex sort of interrelationships are um, but i think i think one of the main messages of the paper i suppose is that the spending in the united Kingdom by the government is has its provenance in legislation and its provenance in in Parliament. It is correct to say that the government spends money into existence, and Parliament sets the limit on that every year. And, and once you realise that, I think it completely reframes tax and bond sales, the sales of government securities. It completely reframes that. Those things are usually framed in the sense of, you know, tax is there. To provide funds for the government to spend government borrowing is there to provide funds for the government to spend and without those two things the government wouldn't be able to spend i mean that we're told that all the time but that's not the case those two things are completely reframed by understanding that parliament creates money via the bank Mm -hmm. of england so then the question becomes well what are those things for and of course mmt has answers for that you know from a strictly accounting perspective which is what we do we, we do in our paper those both of those things, sales of government securities, government borrowing, whatever you want to call it, and taxes are there to offset the impact of the spending in in, in the banking sector and, and in the economy. And so in that sense, you know, you can describe it as hygiene, or you can describe it as garbage collection or, you know, some some metaphor like that, whereby they do not provide the ability for the government to spend or they didn't they do not provide the funds for the government to spend and they certainly do not have to occur first for the government to be able mm-hmm. to spend out of a balance that it has in a bank account um what they are there for is to mitigate the effects of the spending on the economy and obviously the effect that spending has on the economy is not it's not always the same you know it depends on the economic conditions um and it might be the case at certain times that you don't have to you don't have to offset all of that spend because the economic conditions are such that the banking sector and the economy as a whole can absorb more money being spent Mm -hmm. into the economy by the government and other times the opposite might be true you know it might be true that you need to drain more out than you've actually spent in you know those Mm -hmm. these things are all dependent on the macroeconomic context Mm -hmm. but it's but it's very different to what um what we're told generally in that taxing and debt sales or government borrowing are are there to fund the government and um you know, if the government is profligate and if the government is reckless, then it has to do, you know, it, it gets itself into a bad situation where it might have to, it, you know, it might have a cheque that bounces, it might have its spending refused. But no, that literally can't happen sure. in, the, in the UK. Um, and that, that's not to say that the, the borrowing activities and the taxation aren't important. Of course, they are. They are important to provide the offsetting effect, but you have to understand that that is the job that they are doing. Not the job that we're often told. Um, yeah, so I, th- I mean, I think to, to me that's the main the main message of our paper. Now, now those those conclusions aren't unprecedented or original. You know, they're exactly what MMT would would uh, would describe.
1: You you really take the theory and map it to reality. That's what your paper. I think does.
0: so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I think I think what we've done is we've shown that. If you look at the institutional situation in the United Kingdom, the sort of mechanics, the policies, the conventions, and the legislation that is involved in all of that, um, that you end up concluding, you know, all of those things that MMT sees, and I, I, you know, I hope it can be seen that we've been objective and that we've prevented, presented in the evidence for that, rather than you know it being a sort of, you know, we've we've produced the the conclusion that we wanted to.
1: Yeah, I mean, they they, they're, they're, they could use the evidence to prove you wrong. And if the evidence can prove you wrong, then so be it. I don't yeah, think that yeah, that's yeah, going to yeah. be the case. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I, absolutely. And, I, and I, you know, I, I honestly think, you know, in all the discussions that sort of myself, Richard and Neil have had over over the years about this and weighing up this, weighing up that, weighing up this new bit of evidence, this, we've really wanted to be able to, I suppose, question MMT and say, is it true? I want to know that. It, I want to know if it is true. Is it true in the UK's context, or is it not? And which bits are true? Which bits maybe aren't? Um, and mm-hmm. I suppose you know, MMT can be lots of different things to lots of different people. And you know, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's even true that there's one single MMT <laughs> like viewpoint. But there's definitely a lot of things that are associated with MMT, uh, and a lot of sort of. Things that would be considered to be core MMT, and I, th- I think I think for the most part, the things that most people would consider to be sort of core MMT are sort of shown to be correct in the UK.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, that's great. Uh, so I'm just going to give a, a few observations. You don't, I don't, I don't want you to um, uh, to respond to any of these, and I'll just say goodbye at the end of it. Um, okay. So, number one, uh, I I said this, and I, I want us to say it again, maybe in a slightly different way, that your paper confirms that the mmt the theory actually applies to the world in which we actually live that is what makes mmt convincing to average human beings is that you know the theory actually applies to the world in which we actually we can confirm that and that yours is a huge piece of that Um, number two is in my eyes and i'm actually not certain that this is correct but as best as i understand currently is uh, Stephanie Kelton's paper "Do Taxes and Bond Sales Finance Government Spending" is the U.S. version of your paper? And if you read both of those papers, I have read both of those papers. They're both difficult papers, just because of the nature of what they're describing. But my instinct says that that Stephanie Kelton's paper is just there's just much less to it. It's it's very it's a difficult paper, especially at the stage that I read it. But that seems to kind of confirm that the US system is less complicated than the UK system. I mean, maybe that's a set out of ignorance. I don't know. But uh, that's my feeling. Uh, uh, Two other things. One is that monetary policy is crude, is a crude way of managing the economy. And taxes and fiscal policy, which includes taxes, can be a very precise way to manage the economy. But they have taken taxation and made it essentially a one to one, that taxation must one to one, you know and bond sales. But taxation must map one to one to spending, which has turned taxation into another crude tool to manage inflation. I just you're saying that kind of made me think that that they changed what could be a precise tool. Into mm-hmm. a crude tool, it is. It does work to ma- to offset somewhat, but it's incredibly crude because one to one can only be crude. Um, and then finally, uh, the other major point that I got out of your paper is that the seed from which you know Parliament's decisions come from, where their their creation of money comes from, is the consolidated fund. So the the magical number that creates money that's literally just a number in a spreadsheet in a computer is the consolidated fund. And that is from the, that, that is the man, I guess this is kind of, I don't think there's a great way of saying it, but that's the <laughs> manifestation of mm-hmm. parliament's decisions of yeah. legislating yeah. money into existence. So,
0: yeah, I mean, that's, that's like the, the, the legal and accounting yeah, manifestation of, of, of that decision. That's right. Yeah.
1: All right. Cool. All right. Um. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for talking. Uh, I really enjoyed this. This was, uh, I, I love that we, you know, just talked about what we liked, you know, just subjects that we mm-hmm. enjoy as opposed to just diving into em- academic topics. I really like that. Um, thank you for spending so much time with me. And uh, I look forward to, from the listener's point of view, of hearing the the joint interview in uh, a few weeks. Yeah, it's
0: been a pleasure. So thanks very much for, uh, for inviting me on, Jeff. It's been great. Okay.
1: Show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape A Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus Plus then transferring those timestamps to my windows desktop at that point i crudely process the audio in audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the reaper digital audio workstation activist mmt is hosted by libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online headliner app Today's part two of my two-part conversation with 10th year MMT activist Andy Berkeley. Andy has a PhD in marine sedimentology and is a marine scientist and oceanographer by trade. He's also the co-author of the 2020 paper, An Accounting Model of the UK Exchequer, which is published by the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. This episode is also part three of a larger seven-part series on the paper and its three co-authors. The first five are with each individual author, and the final two with all three jointly, where we discuss the paper in depth. Last week, in part one of my conversation with Andy, we spoke about two very non-economic topics— The first half dedicated to the 50-year-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the second half to the drastically different and lighter subject of music. Today in Part 2, Andy describes his life and thinking before knowing about MMT. He tells the story about how he discovered it from an actual stranger on a train who he now knows as Chris Cook. While talking with a friend, the person sitting across from him, Chris, interrupted and interjected the fateful words, banks don't lend deposits and governments don't spend taxes. Confirming the former came rather quickly for Andy. The latter, however, that governments don't spend taxes, took years to fully grasp. After learning more about the concept, it made the entire puzzle appear to make sense. However, only after completing his 2020 paper many years later did he finally confirm that what was mere economic theory, to him nothing more than a thought experiment, actually applies to the world in which we live. Two important events that Andy believes prepared him to accept MMT years later were first the 2003 invasion of Kuwait by Iraq and the subsequent invasion of Iraq by the US and its allies. The second was a brief and largely out-of-place montage in the Michael Moore documentary Bowling for Columbine. The montage shows how the United States invasion of Iraq was merely the tip of an iceberg, demonstrating its decades-long imperialism and the UK's support of it. These two things called into question for Andy the idea that the US and UK are 100% forces for good, and it made him realize that what we are told may in fact be contrary with reality, and actually has the goal of keeping the powerful powerful and everyone else in the dark. As an aside, It's both shocking and not shocking that YouTube will not allow you to share that montage at all. It won't even allow you to copy the link. Finally, a minor correction. The UK is 800 years old. And now let's get right back to my conversation with Andy Berkeley.